All right, guys, our text today is coming from Genesis 18, and we're going to read verses 17 through 33. Now, we are in our series called New Beginnings 2.0, and we've been looking at the story of Abraham, and what we're doing is we're watching his pilgrimage of discovering God on his way to this great promised land that God has promised to give him. He's on his way back to Eden. And it's filled, this story of Abraham is filled with courage, failures, vulnerability, and growth. And along the journey, God grows him into the type of person that brings about a whole new society here on the earth. Basically, he is the founding father through which heaven is coming to the earth. But in order for Abraham to create this kind of culture, he has a lot that he has to learn about God, and there's a lot of growing that Abraham has to do. And that's why today what we're going to see is Abraham, God invites Abraham to explore God's very own heart and mind. It's like the door of God's heart and mind is opened up. Abraham walks in and he gets to explore and look around so he better knows the God of gods. And today, we're given not just... Well, before I tell you this, it's fascinating. You open up this door and guess what happens? Guess what you peer in and see? You see this courtroom and what you find is that Abraham is arguing with God. He's arguing it out with God. And we're given not just a front row seat, but we're actually invited to come in and explore the justice and the grace of God. And we're also invited to wrestle through this with God. And we're also like Abraham being called to go into this courtroom and plead for our city, just as Abraham starts doing for a wicked city named Sodom. Like we're called to plead for our nation. So let me read our verses. Genesis 18, 17 through 33. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went to Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Here's where the arguing starts to begin. Will you indeed sweep away the righteousness, the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there's 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away in the place and not spare the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said... If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole city for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And 
He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose there are 40 found there. And he answered, for the sake of the 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak with the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not, will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the, the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. All right, weird, weird text, but it's going to become beautiful to you once I explain it. So here's what we're going to see today. The responsibility of the Christian, the invitation to the Christian, the discovery of the Christian, the calling of the Christian, and then the action of God. So first, the responsibility of the Christian. In verse 20, there is an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this word for outcry is the Hebrew word for it is specifically focused in on the oppressed. So this story that we are looking at today gives us a Christian and a biblical perspective of our current climate on justice and race in the perspective of our past failures as the church in America. And I promise that this was not planned. We are walking right through the series and it just so might be that the providence of God has brought us here today and that might mean that God has a very important message for us to hear right now. So in this story, we have wicked Sodom who have been oppressive, an oppressive city, and God is about to destroy it. And in verse 17, God says to him, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do to Sodom? In other words, God is like, I need, I want Abraham to know what I'm about to do and why I'm about to do it. Now, why would God do that? Why is God inviting Abraham into his very own heart and mind to see what God is doing and why he is doing it? Why does Abraham get this privilege to do this? Because of the responsibility that God has placed upon Abraham. God has chosen Abraham to be the founding father of, of an alternative city, an alternative nation, a heavenly nation here on the earth. And then in verse 18, God says, seeing, and I know I just read this, but I got to read this again. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him, for I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, Abraham's name means the father of many nations. You could think of him like the big daddy. He's the father of many. And this society, here's what he's meant to do. He is meant to be the father, the founding father through which heaven comes upon the earth and a whole new society is built. And here's, here's what the society looks like. It's a, it's a city that's a bridge that is ushering the old world into the new world. 
So God, what God's doing here is he's inviting Abraham into a practice game. He's giving him a view of his heart and mind so that Abraham knows how to then live so he might live that way so that heaven might come on the earth. And not just him, but the whole society after him. He has a responsibility as the father to build this society and make sure it comes. So I want to, what I want you to do is I want you to picture two cities, a horrible city and a perfect city. And they're both separated by this bottomless pit. Abraham is the founding father that sets up a bridge city that connects two cities. Now the question that you need to be asking right now is why in the world would God want to do this? Why would he want to connect this perfect city to a horrible city? Because then won't the people of that horrible city cross over? And as they cross over, it's going to ruin this perfect city. Why would God do that? I mean, Sodom is this wicked place. Here's where we're beginning to get to the heart of the Bible. The Bible's risky. It takes risks on people. It seems counterproductive. The way up is the way down. And it, what, here's, what, here's what God is doing. He's getting us to enter into the darkest parts of this world so the world might be changed. That's what he's getting Abraham to do, and that is what he is getting us to do. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, talks about the Christian being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. This is echoing everything that Abraham has been called. So every Christian has the father of Abraham as their father, and we're meant to replicate what he is doing here in our verses. And, and here's not all. Every Christian was once part of Sodom. And God took the risk to build the bridge from wicked Sodom to the heavenly city. Those who have received the mercies of God become the bridge from one world to the next. So please listen to me, please listen. If you are a Christian, you have a huge responsibility of building this bridge city that unites Sodom, this wicked city, to heaven, to the eternal city. And you have to take risks for the sake of of the wicked city so that that wicked city might see the marvelous light of Christ and then cross over. That is why Abraham is being invited into the heart of God. He needs to understand God's own heart as the founding father so he might know him and then bring all of the character of God into the earth. And that's why God is inviting you into this story so that you might explore the justice and the grace of God and you might then bring that into our world. We're beginning here. I mean, the church is setting up this bridge city. So that's bringing us to our second point, the invitation of the Christian. So Robert Alter, he's a Hebrew scholar, and he tells us that this place where Abraham is standing before God and this whole scene is meant to be a picture of the divine courtroom where this prayer is happening. And it brings us in and Abraham enters into the courtroom and he starts arguing it out with God. And what he's doing is he's, he's entering into the, the complexities of the justice and the grace of God. And he's looking and he's saying, God... You're about to destroy Sodom. But how could you do that? Because there's got to be some righteous in this city. 
would you really be the kind of God that would destroy a whole city even if there are a few righteous in there? But think about if God doesn't destroy the city, what happens? If he doesn't destroy the city, then he's ignoring the outcry of those who are being oppressed by the city, so therefore he's not being gracious to the oppressed by allowing the city to survive. The ex- what Abraham is doing is he's getting into the boundaries of God's justice and God's grace in this courtroom of, of prayer. So what should be done? How can both justice and grace exist simultaneously? Because if you, are ju- if you are gracious to one, it brings wrath down on the other. If God is gracious to Sodom, then Sodom will continue to oppress and kill all that they are doing this to. So God's got to be gracious to them, but if God is, destroys Sodom, then there are righteous that are in the city that get destroyed along with Sodom. So, this trying to figure this out starts happening, and look at what Abraham does. He begins to advocate for this whole wicked city because there are a few who are righteous in it. And Abraham says to God, God, if there are 50 righteous in the city, will the city be saved? And God says yes, and then he says, well, what about 45? God says yes. What about 40? Yes. 30? Yes. 20? Yes. All the way down to 10. God will save wicked Sodom if there are 10 righteous in that city. So I hope you feel the tension here because it feels wrong no matter what happens. If if he brings down his wrath on Sodom, then the righteous die. But if he doesn't do that, then those in Sodom continue to oppress those who are being oppressed. It's a no-win situation for God. In the world, if I'm speaking in human terms. When we explore the heart and mind of God, we see the perfect justice and grace, and we see that it is a conflict for God, a massive conflict. And if we will continue to wrestle, listen here, if we will continue to wrestle in the courtroom of God's justice and grace, and even argue it out with God, we will discover what Christianity really is. This is our third point, the discovery of the Christian. Here's what Abraham finds out. God will spare the whole city if there are just ten righteous. But why did Abraham stop at ten? What if Abraham went all the way to one? If he went all the way to one, would God spare that wicked city? And the answer is yes. It is the story of Christianity. God spares us because of the righteousness of one who has come from the good city into the wicked city and died in the place of those who are in the wicked city who deserve to die. Romans 3 tells us that no one is righteous, not even one. But the one righteous, Christ, does come. And he dies in the wicked city for the wicked city so that the wicked city would be spared. This is where we're starting to explore the radical justice and grace of God. There is a thing called imputed sin and imputed righteousness. Let me explain it. First, look at imputed sin. The righteous in the city are about to be killed because of the unrighteousness of the many. And the same is true for you at a greater and more terrible level. 
the sin of Adam and Eve, did you know that it's credited to you? Adam and Eve's sin is your sin. You are actually guilty because of Adam and Eve's own sin. Look, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned. So it's saying this one man sinned, but because of his sin, God considers it as all of us have sinned. And then Romans 5.14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So all of you get death because of the sin of one man, Adam. He becomes your representative. And you say, well, that isn't fair. How could I be guilty because of Adam's sin? Well, the Bible sees sin as personal, but it also sees the Bible as very corporate. Now, we live in one of the most individualistic societies there has ever been. And, and what, we're fi- what you find when you read the Bible is it has a good balance of both corporate sin and individual sin. That's why sometimes in the Bible, you see one person do something wrong and the whole family dies because of what that one person did. You actually see a community of people who suffer because one man in that community is secretively sinning. That's crazy. Now, that's very corporate. Now, later on in Jeremiah, we see that God says, I won't count the sins from the father to the son, but there's still a responsibility that bears. Adam sinned, and it's credited to us. Now, okay, you ready for this? There is a tendency for us to say, I wasn't a slave owner, and I'm not a racist, so don't lump me in with those people. And that's true to some degree. But remember, the Bible sees sin as corporate as well. So if we are in solidarity with a certain group of people, then we have a responsibility to fix what has been done. The sins of the church of the past, we must take the responsibility for what has happened. So, for example, if one of my kids does something wrong to another kid, I don't say, I'm not going to go talk to their parents about this. I'm going to let my kid do that. He's the one that sinned, not me. I'm going to let him take responsibility for that. No, I go and I talk to them. I do. I go and talk to them. You should do that. You say, well, okay, that's fine. I get that. But I'm not a parent to people. I'm not a parent to everyone. Well, hold on. If you are a Christian, you take on the responsibility that Abraham takes on. Abraham is the father of a new society. So he is responsible for the culture that is being built. And because we are Christians, we also have to take responsibility for what is happening here on the earth. To say yes to Jesus is to say yes to living the way Abraham lives right here in our verses. So the church in the past supported slavery and participated in racism, and we have a responsibility to fix what has been done. So, okay... Put that on pause. That's the bad news of imputed sin. Now let's look at imputed righteousness. Romans 5.18 goes on and says, Therefore, yeah, I'm going to read it. Whoever, whosoever kid said no, I'm going to read it. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. 
We inherit the sins of Adam, but we also inherit by faith the righteousness of Christ. This is how this great tension is resolved. Both justice and grace can happen if this is true. It's, the, it's everything with Christianity. This is why Jesus must become human. So he can take on the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5, in it, it says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. All of our sins, all of your sins, credited to him on the cross, though he was perfect. Now all of his righteousness credited to you, though you are imperfect. This is what we have our faith in. He is the bridge of grace, and the city is built upon that grace who is Christ. Look, God would destroy that wicked city, and he'd destroy the righteous along with them. But he'd also save the wicked city for the righteous. So how does the city get saved? Because both are true, so how does the city get saved? It gets saved by a mediator. That was a wow. A mediator. That is exactly who and what Christ is for us. Abraham is functioning like a mediator for Sodom, but also Christ begins to function for us as a mediator. So look at, look at, look, look, look. Here's what God's doing. He's testing Abraham. Is he ready to be the type of founding father that will build this society on the earth? While Christ is the bridge that we walk upon, we stand upon him, his grace, and usher others into the new world. That's Abraham's calling and that's your calling. Okay, so here, here you go. The calling of the Christian. So here we go. Here we go. The radical nature of this new society. I want you to see what Abraham is doing here. He's advocating for this oppressive city and the righteous and the oppressed. He's advocating for everybody. And by advocating for the righteous, what he's doing is advocating then for the wicked city. But also, he's seeking the way of the Lord, which means he's advocating for those who are oppressed. Advocating for all. So, he is the so, so we see he's advocating for the victim and the villain. Why? Because he's the father of the alternative society. And we all need someone like Abraham. Because we are like wicked Sodom. The Bible describes us as both victims and villains. Villains of this world, but victims who have... No, sorry. Victims of this world, but villains who have sinned. And because we've been rescued as people who are both villains and victims... We usher both victims and villains across the bridge of grace to the other side. Here's what's happening here. Abraham has found the hidden solution to God's justice and grace. That if the oppressors could just meet a mediator, the mediator, Christ, they would be changed by the grace that's been given to them. 
He's being a father of the faith. He's being a bridge to all, a priest to all. Justice and grace is being sought. And he's wrestling through this imputed sin and this imputed righteousness. And he's advocating for the oppressors. But that doesn't mean he doesn't care for the oppressed. He's seeking justice and grace for all. So what does that mean for us? It means we do the same thing. We seek justice and grace for all. If someone is being oppressed, we seek justice. To be merciful to the oppressed is to seek justice against the oppressor. But also look at what Abraham's doing. He's at the same time praying for the oppressor. So that Jesus Christ might take their sins away and give them a new heart. And then the oppressor goes from being a villain to a hero who stands upon the bridge of grace and ushers other villains across to the other side. The other day, our kids, Kale and Harlow, put their pretend babies to sleep and they went out on a pretend date. But why'd they do that? It's cute, super cute. Why'd they do that? Because that's what me and Elise do. They're following after the pattern that they have learned from their parents. And we do the same by following after the pattern that we see Abraham doing right here. And Christ, who died for his enemies, so he might win them over. So, let's, let's do a little pretend thing. Let's say that there's a father. And this father has a son. His two sons. One son has committed a crime. What's he going to do about it? He's gotten away with the crime. What's he going to do? Is he going to turn his son in? Is he going to go talk to his son and say, listen, son, justice needs to be done. You need to go turn yourself in. Is he going to be gracious to him? Is he going to be there? And is he going to pray for them? Look at all the tension that this father's feeling. Now let's take that father who has another son, same father. And that son, that second son, a crime has been committed against him. And he's ready to fight for justice. Here's the problem. That father and those two sons are the ones who are fighting. You see what I'm saying? The older brother or younger brother, whoever has committed a crime against the other. And look at what the father, look at the tension that Abraham would feel for that. That's what he's feeling as he's looking at what's going on. And that is what it feels like to be a Christian walking through this world. That's the experience of Abraham, and it's our experience. And that is what it should feel like in our current climate. A father to this fighting world. All right. Can you guys let me talk freely? Can I just, like, get it out? Okay. We should be outraged by what's happening around us. And we should also be praying and advocating for all even people who are racist. Why? Why should we pray for people who are racist? Because that is the only way that our world will be changed. I've been reading through some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s prayers. And in those prayers, he prays for his enemies. He's asking God. He's saying, God, help me love my enemies. Now, if you love your enemies, you're going to pray for them. So I'm assuming he's praying for them. Now, 
there's been a study of all the great leaders. I think this study was released a couple years ago. Of all the great leaders, I think back from the 1500s till today, and they have Martin Luther King Jr. ranked as the number one, the best leader there has been over since the 1500s till now. And I gotta believe it's because he knows the Bible very well, and he is functioning like an Abraham to the world that he has seen. He's being a father. To be a Christian makes you a father to all the world and all that's happening around you. You take responsibility like a father would. Look, okay, as a Christian, you should have no problem saying black lives matter. I'm not talking about being affiliated with the organization. I'm just saying you should have no problem saying that. Now, okay, what about all lives matter? What, what, should, what should we be saying? Well, look, let's think like priestly shepherds. Jesus left the 99 to go and get the one. And we should rejoice in that. Jesus makes the one who is in need, the one who is the focus, that one, he brings it in on that person. Christianity is corporate, but it's very personal also. The Bible puts an emphasis on the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the oppressed. But that doesn't... It doesn't mean that other lives don't matter, but it does mean that we should focus in on the one who is in greater need. And look, all of us are in need. We all are in great need, and we have gone as Christians to Christ who has met that need, and because that need has now been met, we can go and meet the needs of others. As a father, I have a son who's constantly suffering cognitively because of an autoimmune disease. Now, when I get home from work, one of the first things I ask is, how did Cruz do today? It doesn't mean I don't care about my other kids. It's just like, he is the one who is suffering, so he's the one that's on my mind in that moment, so I want to go and be there for him and see how he's doing. But all of my kids matter to me. So if I wear a shirt that says, kids with encephalitis matter, that doesn't mean I don't, the other kids don't matter. People who have children with autism have autism bumper stickers. That doesn't mean their other kids don't matter. When the prodigal son returned home, his father, in Luke, 8, in Luke 15, his father threw him a party. And the older son was so mad about it, he wouldn't come to the party. So the father goes to get the older son and says, what's going on? He says, he didn't know if he was loved. We're welcoming him back. We're throwing him a party to make sure that he knows he is loved. Now get to the party. Go to the one in need. Yet, at the same time, look at what Abraham's doing. He's interceding for the oppressors. He's interceding in the courtroom for the entire city. And we ought to do the same. We ought to pray for the righteousness of Christ to save racist people. It's our only hope for change. I would imagine, come on, get in the courtroom. Imagine that you are one who's being oppressed by Sodom, and you're watching Abraham pray that God would rescue Sodom, and you got to be thinking like, God, what are you doing? They're killing us. Or Abraham, what are you doing? They're killing us. Why would you do this? Let God take them out. But the Christian has come to realize something. If you've read the Bible enough, you realize that if you cut off the head of one oppressor, another one's coming up. So what's the way forward? Grace. Grace will soften the heart of an oppressor and make them changed. 
a discovery of grace. Look, guys, this is a completely different way of thinking. Completely. This isn't about left-right. It's about up and down. Bringing heaven to the world around us. Bringing in a whole new society here on the earth. Racism exists even if you aren't racist. And we have to take responsibility for that and be advocates for those in our black community. We have to speak out. If you experience reverse racism, pray for that person and be an advocate for that person who has done that. They have a story that has led them up to that moment. You say, well, yeah, I have a story too. I say, I know you have a story. Come and tell me your story, but be gracious to them because that is what God has given you, grace. Some of you are mad. I even said reverse racism. Say that isn't a thing. Come on, just be patient with me. Let me just get all this out, okay? Christian police are seeking to bring heaven to earth right now. And it's, they're, they're being clumped in with a group of people. Be an advocate for Black Lives Matter. Be an advocate for Blue Lives Matter. Like, you go, you go before God. Like, you're just going before God, and you put on your Black Lives Matter shirt, and you're praying, and you're being an advocate for God. And then you take off that shirt, and you put Blue Lives Matter shirt on. You put that shirt on, and you pray for, for, for all police officers. All right, you ready for this one? It says, pray for our leaders. Can you pray for the president? Some of you guys are like, yeah, get him. And then you guys are like, oh, man. Ah, did you pray for the president before that was a Democrat? Now you guys are like, oh, yeah, get him. And you guys are like, oh. If you experience racism against you, pray for the other. Let's talk about looters and rioters. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech all about peaceful protests. He did. He did. But in this speech, he also said that looting and rioting is the language of the unheard. He's not saying that looting and rioting is good. He's saying, ask the question, why? Yes, ask the question, why are there looters and rioters? If you put your ear to the ground and listen, you will hear the cries of Abel who was killed by his brother's hand. The blood of Abel cries out from the ground. The word that's being used here for crying out, this outcry, the same root word is used when when Abel's blood cries out from the ground. we got to listen. If you want looting and rioting to stop, let people be heard. They feel misunderstood. That's why they're looting and rioting. Now, I'm not saying that everybody, some people are just taking advantage of the situation. That's not what I'm talking about. Come on, just be patient with me. So, how can we be like Abraham? Now that I've made all of you uncomfortable, we have to ask that question. We got to see that all of us are both victims and villains. And all of us are oppressed, and we have oppressed others. The church, the church is oppressed right now. You want to know how I know that the church in America is oppressed? Because we can't agree. And you know what the truth does? It sets you free. So if we can't be in unity about what truth is, then that means that there is some oppression coming over the church. So what is the truth that we have to see and know and hear? That one righteous man died as a victim and a villain for those who are victims and villains. 
the one righteous, died for victims and villains in order to make them righteous heroes who would guide the world around us to the new world. God looks down at us today and he sees Sodom. That's Sodom. It's representing the world. So he sends his son, the one righteous. And he came into the city, the one righteous man from heaven, and we killed him. We killed him. The corporate sins of humanity, we killed God. And he let it happen on purpose because he had this beautiful plan that by his death, The one righteous would die in the place of the unrighteous in order to credit the unrighteous with his righteousness. Oh, man. If you believe that to be true, you know exactly how to have grace and justice and peace come flooding into this world. Christ and Christ alone. By taking the world to Christ. He is the way to to peace. He is the way to heal our nation. Not Republicans, not Democrats, Christians. You. We have been given a grace that we didn't deserve. So we will scream it with our words and our actions at every street corner, into every household, at every political event, and on every Sunday morning. Because he and he alone is our only shot. He is our way to peace. Let me pray. Father, I pray that these words were right. And if they were not right, that you would take those words away. But God, I know they're right. I know that they're good. And I know, God, that we need to be people who follow after the pattern of Abraham and follow after the pattern of our rescuer who became a priest, an advocate for us in that courtroom. So God, please help us. Please help us to take one side, the side of Christ, and pledge our allegiance to him over all other allegiances. And let that truth lead us to truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.